We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We'll begin our series that I announced last week, sort of doing a biblical examination of the Nicene Creed that we make you confess on a regular basis. Now every, and we begin with what's often referred to as the first article of the creed, the first article which begins with God the Father. Now it would be very easy to prove every little phrase in this with, with a plethora of Bible verses. Uh, but I think it would be better for us to maybe just turn to one passage that I think, whether explicitly or implicitly, demonstrates this entire phrase altogether. So would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. Acts chapter 17, and we're going to read verses 22 through 31 together. And when you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22, Thus saith the Lord. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? While the Apostle Paul was on a missionary trip to Corinth, he had to stop in a city called Athens because he needed to wait up there and link up with his traveling companions. So he's supposed to be on mission with Timothy and Silas, and they had been separated. So Paul is asked to wait in Athens for Timothy and Silas to meet up with him, and then they can make their way to Corinth. And while Paul is in Athens waiting for his companions, he is grieved to the very core of his being because he notices the idolatry of the Athenians. All over the city of Athens, he sees their temples, he sees their shrines, he sees their altars, he sees all their carved images, he sees all of their handmade gods. And it grieved him to his soul, and so he couldn't help himself. This no longer was just a place of transition, this became the mission. And so he starts preaching. He goes into the synagogues, preaching with the Jews, and he begins preaching with the Greeks. And after some time of preaching... He began to garner enough attention that he was summoned to the Areopagus. 
The Areopagus, uh, it's, you, you can still see its ruins today. It's quite amazing. There was this large hill in the city of Athens, and they built what was essentially like a small coliseum on it called the Areopagus. And the Areopagus was the place where all of the philosophers would meet to debate and discuss various topics. So if you remember, the Greco-Roman world is sort of the birthplace of philosophy, the Greek philosophers, and you have different schools, Plato, the Stoics, Aristotle, uh, and many others. And so these different philosophers from these competing philosophies would meet in the Areopagus to have these very heavy, deep conversations. And Paul's foreign God and his strange teaching is about resurrections garnered enough attention that people said, we got to get him to the, to the philosophers we got to get this guy to debate. And so they summon him to the Areopagus. So here is this former Pharisee, missionary Jewish man standing in front of what is at this time the world's most brilliant men. And he has his opportunity to speak truth to them. He has his opportunity to sort of correct where they have gone wrong religiously in it doesn't surprise me that he begins with the very basics. He begins with the very doctrine of God. Who is God? What is God? Now, he obviously doesn't have the time, and the scriptures don't have the time to, to, to give a full and exhaustive treatment on that question, but he cuts right to the heart of, of some of their most basic concerning errors to teach them in an epic fashion, I think you will agree with me about the truth of the Christian religion, I would think what you might find interesting is just how closely Paul's doctrine of God in Acts 17 maps onto the portion of the Nicene Creed that we're reading today. Paul, as I saw it, the Nicene Creed essentially, and what we're looking at today, is broken down into four claims. We're making four claims in the first article of the Creed. We're saying that there is only one God. We're saying that He is the Creator. We're saying that He is Almighty, and we're saying that He is Father. Those are the four things we confess about God. That God is one, that God is Creator, that God is Almighty, and that God is Father. And now Paul says more than that in Acts 17, but I want us to focus on those four points, because I think you will find that he makes these very points when trying to correct the pagan philosophers. So let's begin with point number one, that there is only one God, or what I'm calling God is one. Look at verse 22 through 23 with me. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. <clears throat> Paul's introduction to his sermon, as I've already said, is really nothing short of absolutely epic. I, this, is just, this is the greatest start to a sermon that I have ever heard. Well, while at this time, many Greek philosophers, you might be surprised to know, right around this time is when Greek philosophers were actually starting to come through reason to believe in what we call monotheism that there is only one God. Or as they would say, there's, there has to be only one single primary source, one single cause of all the rest. So a kind of monotheism was emerging in the Greco-Roman world. But by and large, in Paul's day, the overwhelming culture of the Greeks is what we call polytheistic, which means they believe in many gods. Poly meaning multiple and theism meaning gods. They are polytheistic people. 
And this is proved to Paul because of all of their idols. They've got altars and, and, and statues of all of these different gods, all of these different objects of worship. They were polytheists, which, by the way, in this day and age, was the overwhelming report of the world. Polytheism is not only still incredibly popular today, it exists in the West in religions like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. They're polytheists, multiple gods. But in the East, it's very popular with Hinduism and, and many of the other Eastern spiritualities. So not only is polytheism popular today, but back then it was even more popular. Remember, Islam is not invented yet. So Islam's monotheistic, but it doesn't exist yet. It's basically just the Christians and the Jews. They're the only monotheistic people. The rest of the world are all polytheists, that there are multiple gods out there. The Greeks are among that report. So they've made idols and temples to all of these gods. And Paul notices a really interesting altar. One of their altars, you know, so they've got idols and they'd have the name of the god on it. Or they'd have an altar where they would sacrifice to the god and they would have the name of the god on that altar. And Paul noticed there's an altar that didn't have a name. The inscription read, to the unknown god. And by the way, we actually have archaeological evidence of this. We have found archaeological evidence of multiple altars and statues with this title to the unknown God. We have to speculate a little bit as to what's going on here. But the general consensus of academics is that the Greeks were so polytheistic that there was a concern. What if there's another God that we just don't know about? We've got all these gods that we do know about. What if there's another one? And if we don't worship him, if we don't make sacrifice, he's going to be offended. So let's just make sort of a catch-all drawer of an idol, right? Let's just make it an altar that will fit for, for all, maybe any of the other gods that we are unaware of. So here's our altar to, to the unknown God, to the God we don't know. And so Paul takes that and he sort of, in a clever way, he, he leverages that and says, I, I, as I observed your relig religiosity, I noticed a confession from you. You have proved, you have confessed from your own lips that you don't really know what you worship. You're not really sure about the divine. And so he stands in front of them and says, so let me explain it. You worship in ignorance by your own confession, so allow me to educate you. Allow me to fill in the gap. You're ignorant, allow me to tell you the truth. And what does he begin with? Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Do you notice how he shifts from the plural to the singular, from the objects of your worship to not the gods, not a god, the god. Paul gives the Athenians a healthy dose of monotheism. There is only one god. This world was not created by a polytheistic group of gods and angels and divine beings. There is one god, there's the god, and he made it. There is only one. Now, Paul is subtle. He's kind of subtle about it here. It's a subtle shift. But don't mistake that. Paul is not subtle about monotheism. And the Bible is not subtle about monotheism. This is one of the clearest and most often expressed truths throughout the entire Bible. While the rest of the world has always been polytheistic, it has always been the followers of the God of Scripture 
who have been taught in clearest possible terms that there is, in fact, only one God. And I'm not being dramatic when I say that it would take up well of the entire day if I were to give to you every single proof text of the Bible that teaches monotheism. There's just way too many for us to do like an exhaustive study of that. So let me just give you a few examples for a moment, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, which has been deemed by some people as the trial of the false gods. Where this passage begins is somewhat debated, but it's basically the 40s of Isaiah. So basically, Isaiah 40 through 49, or 47, is sometimes referred to as the trial of false gods. Because what's happening in these many chapters is the God of Israel, through Isaiah, is challenging the prophets of their false religions. And he's basically saying, you bring your arguments, I'll bring mine, we'll see which God is true. It's a trial, it's a clash of the divine. It's the trial. He's putting their false gods on trial. And all throughout these chapters is repeated over and over and over and over again, ad nauseum, that their gods don't exist. There's only one God. Let me just give you some, a few of those examples. Isaiah 43, 10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he which is the divine name, which is what Jesus claims for himself in the book of John. But anyway, we continue. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. There goes Mormonism, by the way. Mormonism is now off the table for all of you. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. And the next chapter, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. From the next chapter, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. This is the theology of the Bible. We believe in one God. And Paul corrects the Athenians on this point. He's trying to replace their philosophers He's trying to replace all of their philosophy with Moses, right? Because it was Moses who taught us, not that in the beginning the gods, not that in the beginning a god, but that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There is one God who made the heavens and the earth, not many. There is only one God. We confess and we believe that there is one God. But this actually leads us, transitions us very nicely into the next point that Paul makes. Which is that not only is God one, but as the creed says, God is creator. He is the maker of all things. God, point number two, God is creator. Go back to Acts and look at verses 24 through 28 with me. For him, 24 through 28. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Philosophers will sometimes refer to God as the first cause or the ultimate cause. That idea being that everything in the universe that is not God had to and did come into being. 
Everything that exists, unless it's God, if it exists, it came into being. It is created. God is the one who made it. He is the creator of everything. Now, I understand if you wanted to be really nitpicky, you could say, well, hey, you know, technically, Colin, Paul didn't say that in Acts 17. He didn't say God made everything. He just said God made the world and everything in it. But I can assure you that when Paul says that, that's just a shorthand way of saying he created everything. The Athenians certainly understood that whatever divinity was involved in making the earth and everything in it was involved in making everything. So Paul certainly believes that God is responsible for all of creation, not just heaven and earth, not just the earth and all the things in it. As a matter, and in case you don't believe me, let me just remind you of what the Apostle Paul himself said elsewhere in one of his other epistles. In Colossians 1, saying, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So that's where that comes from in the creed. Completely biblical. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Paul certainly understands that it is God who made all things Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, everything that is created is created by God. And what's interesting about this verse is Paul helps us to sort of clarify the difference between visible and invisible. We confess that in the creed. Well, what falls under visible and what falls under invisible? Well, as Paul sees it, um, you don't want to think about the invisible world as too literally, like literally things you don't see. Right? Like, for example, we, we don't see with our naked eyes, you know, atoms and molecules and neutrons. But those don't fall under invisible things. Those fall under visible things. The, the created realm, the space-time continuum, that's things visible. Anything that you can see, anything that you can experience, everything that falls within time and space is visible. And God made all of that. But you believe it or not, we do not live in one realm. A reality existence is not a one realm existence. The space-time continuum is not all that there is. There's an invisible realm that interacts with the space-time realm. And that's what we call angels. That's what we call heaven. That's what we call hell. So angels and demons are interact in this world, but they are not from it. They belong to a different dimension. They belong to a different created reality. They belong to those things which we call invisible. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. So God made heaven. He made angels. He made spirits. That's invisible. And he also made the created space-time continuum. God made everything but himself. If it isn't God, God made it. If it isn't God, God made it. They are all the works of his hands. And so what that implies for us is you've maybe heard the expression that God created ex nihilo, ex nihilo, which is a Latin phrase for out of nothing. God brought the visible and the invisible into ex existence. The reason that's important is because the Greeks and modern day Mormons follow this belief, by the way. Many Greeks believe that matter, the visible realm, was eternal. And that God didn't so much bring it in from nothing into something, but he sort of organized it and formed it into what we see today. So matter is eternal, but then the gods or the gods sort of put it into this beautiful thing that we see today. But what we confess as Christians is matter is not eternal. Only God is eternal. Matter was put into reality, which means it didn't exist before, which means it came from nothing or out of nothing. God just simply created 
He is not the former. He is not the organizer. He's the maker. He's the creator. He brought things that did not exist into existence. And I think we can all agree that in order to do something like that, you probably have to be pretty powerful. What does it take to bring a black hole into existence from nothing? What does it take to bring a star that is so big that we don't even have space on the earth to make a two-scale replica? There are stars that exist in the universe that are, that are literally too big for us to make accurate two-scale replicas of. What kind of a power does it take to make that? Well, at the same time, making things as small as electrons and bacteria. How much power does it take? And the answer to that is it's inconceivable. It has to be an infinite amount of power. It has to be something, maybe a good word would be, I don't know, almighty. As the creed says, we believe in one God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth, Father Almighty. Because that's the kind of God you would have to be to be the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. You have to be almighty. And Paul hints at that too. Point number three, God is almighty. Look at verse 25 with me. Not only does not God not dwell and live in temples, notice what Paul says in verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul has major issues with idols. The Apostle Paul hates idols. He hates images of God. He hates statues of God. He hates paintings of God. Because no matter your intention behind them, they will inevitably and always bring God too low. God cannot be in any way, shape, or form accurately represented by our images. He cannot be contained in temples. He cannot be represented by images. But there's another reason that idols make a mockery of God, and it's that idols are powerless. Idols have no power. They can't clean itself when they get dirty. They can't move itself out of the rain. They can't perform maintenance on themselves when they break. And so how ironic is it that we've got all of these gods that we've fashioned out of stone, that we've fashioned out of clay, that we've fashioned out of wood or paint, and we've called these things gods, and yet they're the ones dependent upon us. They need us to take care of them and to watch over them, to clean them and to move them and to perform maintenance on them. Paul says that kind of incidental symbolism is offensive to, the, to God. Why? Because God doesn't need you. And he doesn't need me. Or as Paul says in verse 25, he is not served by human hands as though he needs anything. Some words that God has never uttered. God has never said these words. I need this. He's never said that. I need help. He's never said that. He doesn't need help. He can't need help. Now, when we talk about the God who is in need of nothing, there are actually lots of attributes that we could draw from that. But one of them certainly is an attribute that we tend to call today omnipotence. Omni meaning all or universal. Potency is power. All powerful. God has an infinite amount of power. And the old way of saying that was the word almighty, which means the same thing. How much might does God have? All of it. 
He's almighty, full of might, full of power. God is all-powerful. And we know that because what does Paul say? He doesn't need anything. The implications of that being he can accomplish whatever he wants. He can accomplish whatever it would be that he might need. He can do anything, which is why he doesn't need anything. And this is the, exactly what the psalmist says. That our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. If God wants to do it, he will and he can. There's no stopping it. He's all powerful. He doesn't need anything. Paul is, in other words, trying to teach the Athenians that their view of God is embarrassingly small. They have replaced the omnipotent, almighty creator with a bunch of feeble gods who need help from others. They worship a bunch of gods with embarrassing limitations when it's Jesus himself who told us that for nothing will be impossible with God. Who do you want to worship? The plethora of limited gods or the one and only unlimited God? No limitations, needs nothing because he is almighty. It is impossible for him to need help. But Paul doesn't, by the way, just teach us that God is all-powerful just from the fact that he created and from the fact that he needs nothing. He's, he really, the emphasis of this passage in proving God's almightiness, improving God's might, Paul's emphasis is actually on God's providence. Paul is trying to focus in this passage primarily on providence. Now, what is providence? Providence is the word that we use to describe how God controls creation. Right? God didn't just create everything and then just say, have at it. We'll see you at the other side. No. God is in control of what he has made. He constantly sustains it, moves it, and is interacting over it. And I submit to you that this incredible power that's needed to bring creation into existence from nothing, that same exact power is needed to guide it, this complicated creation toward its goal and its end. As a matter of fact, even in the trial of the false gods, God uses his providence to prove that he alone is God. He says in Isaiah 46, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. Now how does he establish his godness? I am God and there is none like me. Well, what does he do that nothing else can do? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Here, God proves that he alone is God by stating that I alone am in control of history. In other words, his divine power is proved by his ability to accomplish his purposes with and in the world. He even states, God himself states in this passage, this is how God knows the future. How is God able to stand at the beginning and tell us what's going to happen at the end? How is he able to declare from the beginning the end? How did he know that? Far too many Christians see, think God is a seer. How does God stand at the beginning and, see the, and look and know the end? Well, because he sees it. That's what Christians say. He's outside of time, and so he can see all of time, and so he sees it. What we've done then is we've made God basically just a big divine messenger. What does the future look like? Hold on. Oh, good news. Things work out for all of us, guys. God is not witnessing the future that we created. The future is happening according to his purpose and his counsel. 
God knows the future not because he sees it. He knows the future because he's making it. My purpose will stand. That's what's going to happen. God is trying to tell us, I'm in control of creation. I'm in control of history. I'm in control of the world. Do you think that takes a little bit of power to do that? And it's not just Isaiah who emphasizes this. It's the Apostle Paul. Let's go back to Acts 17 and look at verses 24 through 28 again. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since, here comes providence, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Paul reminds us that God did not just create and leave us be. No, every creature is constantly being upheld by God. All of us always are dependent upon him for life, for breath, and as Paul says, for everything. And he even talks about our movement. In him is not just our being, our existence. God doesn't just like uphold your, your life, but then you just move wherever you want to. You need God to move. He doesn't just say in him we live and have our being. He says in him we live and move and have our being. God doesn't merely sustain you. He gives you and guides you and moves you. And he determined the allotted periods. Every time history changes, every time we have these changes of history and history moves and flows, God determined it. And he determined the the, the boundaries of our dwelling place. You live in Roswell. Guess who made that decision? You were born to this family. You're from this nation. Your family tree. Guess who made that decision? He didn't just create, he controls. He's providentially working in and through and around the world. And and I argue, by the way, one of my favorite examples to talk about God's providence is the Christmas story itself. I, I love, I really appreciate everything Charles said about Bethlehem. And he reminded us that God made a prediction that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem and then it was fulfilled. The Messiah, by the way, who was not from Bethlehem, but from Nazareth. Let me ask you this question. How did God know that the boy from Nazareth would be born in Bethlehem? How did God know that? Was it a lucky guess? Was it a prediction? Did he just see it? Because here's what I want you to ponder. Think of all the things that could have gone wrong which would have nullified that promise. What if the emperor decided to wait an extra year before doing the census? The reason Joseph went to Bethlehem, he didn't live in Bethlehem, but he was from Bethlehem, so that's where he had to take the census. And it just so happened that the very year that Jesus was conceived, the emperor just decided to do a census that would bring Joseph to Bethlehem. What are the odds? But not just that. Even if the census did just coincidentally fall right back in place, what if Joseph decided to leave his very pregnant wife at home with her cousin Elizabeth rather than make her do this long journey? What if they left a day earlier or a few days late? What if they were robbed along the way? What if she had a miscarriage? What if they got injured? And we could go on and on and on to talk about all the things that could have prevented them from being in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. 
And none of that even takes to account the millions of factors and decisions that happened for hundreds and hundreds of years before that to get them in that very place. Do you see how Christmas time is a reminder of just how powerful and how much in control God is? I mean, and, and if you don't even want to talk about providence, then just talk about the incarnation itself. How much power does it take to wed the divine nature with human nature? Could you do that? God is our creator, and he is our almighty creator. God is very, very powerful. And that's putting it lightly. So we've covered some good things. God is one, that he is creator, that he is almighty. But there's something else Paul talks about. He hints at the fact that we are to think of God as father. Look at verses 28 through 29 with me. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul does a couple interesting things in these verses. First, this is the first time he's actually telling the Athenians they got something right. So he's not, all, he's not being totally mean here. They got something right. Because what he does is he quotes from some of their own people. He quotes from um, these famous Greek poets, he, specifically from a man named Epimenides from Crete. He quotes them in the book of Titus as well. And, and back then, um, the poetry wasn't like what poetry is for us today. Poetry was much more philosophically grounded, so the poets and the philosophers were very close. So poets were sort of considered high intellectuals. Um, so he's quoting from what is essentially a philosopher, but he's technically a poet. And he quotes two different quotations from him, saying, here's some things that you guys, you've got a lot wrong, but here's some things you guys got right. And the first one is God's providence, that in him we live and move and have our being. Good job, that's true. But the other one is that we are indeed his offspring. And then he affirms this in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So God is, or forgive me, Paul is affirming that yes, we ought to think of ourselves as God's children, as his offspring. And if we are God's children, what does that make him in relation to us? Father. God is Father. Now, I do have to qualify this, though, because I think Paul is appealing to God's fatherhood in a slightly different way than the creed is. And let me explain, because there are multiple ways in which we can think of God as father. That's sort of a metaphor that fits multiple uh, reasons in Scripture. What Paul is appealing to here is that God is our father metaphorically in the sense that he is our creator, our maker. Right? That's what Paul's saying. Every single person is a, is a son of God. Every single human being is a child of God by virtue of the fact that God created them, that God made them. God brought them into existence. What's that movie? I've, I've heard the famous quote from some comedy. I don't remember what it's from. But there's that famous line, boy, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. I don't know where it's from. But that's kind of the idea. This, this, this idea that the fathers are the one who brought their children into the world. And so that's the metaphor. God is the one who brought us into the world. And, and he can take you out, just in case you needed reminding that. He brought us into the world. He created us. So by virtue of creation, everyone and everything is a child of God. Everything can relate to God as father because he made us and he sustains us. But there are other ways the Bible describes God as father, which actually don't apply to everybody. So God is also our father salvifically by grace. 
We call this adoption. When you become a believer, God adopts you into his family. So that's a fatherhood that you have with God that unbelievers don't. In that sense, unbelievers cannot call God Father. I won't go to the passages, but you can mark down things like Romans chapter 8, which says that it is only those who have the Spirit who are children of God who can cry out, Abba, Father. Jesus in John chapter 8 tells the Pharisees that their father is actually Satan, which John picks up in 1 John and saying that those who obey God are children of God, those who do not obey God are children of the devil. So in salvation, God becomes our father in a unique way, not a universal way. And, and, and the creed is probably drawing from the creation standpoint at this to some degree because we just got done saying he's the almighty creator, father. But when you look at the creed as the whole, I don't think the creed is primarily focusing upon God as father because he's creator. Though it certainly is agreeing with that. And it's not primarily focusing on God as father because he adopts children into salvation. Though the creed would agree with that, the creed is actually focusing on the fact that the reason the first person of the Trinity is called Father is because what does someone by definition have to have in order to be a father? A child. The creed calls God Father because he has a son. Read verses 30 through 31 with me of Acts 17. The times of ignorance... God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We call the first person of the Trinity Father, God the Father, because he has a son. And I believe that's what the creed is focusing on because as you will see next week, the very next part, after we've introduced God the Father, you think, well, why is he Father? Because the very next part, we are introduced to the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. We call the first person of the Trinity Father because he has a son. He has a begotten child. Because he is the Almighty Father and Creator of mankind, he has the right to stand in judgment over the world. God has the right and the authority as our creator to judge us. And every person, make no mistake about it, will stand before the creator one day. But what we learn in Acts 17 is that God has handed judgment off to somebody. He's given someone else the authority to judge, and it's a human being. He gave a human being the divine authority and prerogative to be the judge of the entire world. Every single person will stand before a human being in judgment one day. And you say, that's crazy. God would never give a human being the ability to do that. And God understands that's a big claim. So he did something to that human being to vindicate his claim. He raised him from the dead to vindicate who he is. And what it does is it doesn't just vindicate that Christ has been given authority. It vindicates his claim that he is God's very son. Now understand, Paul didn't say that in this verse. He didn't use the word son. And it was probably smart. He's already dropped so much change on the Athenians. I'm not sure that their brains could even handle that kind of a the philosophical truth bomb at this point. So it was probably wise for him to just kind of stick with the basics before moving on to these intra-Trinitarian philosophies. But make no mistake about it. The reason this man in verse 31 is to judge the world is because he is more than man. 
He is the Son of God. That's Paul's theology, and if you don't believe, to believe me, we're going to end with Romans chapter 1. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Just over one book, Acts, Romans, Romans chapter 1, and look at the first six verses. Who is this man whom God has appointed to be the judge of the universe? Who is this man that God resurrected from the dead? Romans chapter 1, read verses 1 through 6 with me. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's stop there. Here Paul is telling us very plainly, there is a man, a human being, descended from David. That makes him a man, a human being, one of David's children, who God raised from the dead and gave all authority. But what did that resurrection prove? That he's not just David's son. He's David's son according to the flesh, but he's someone else's son according to the Spirit. Whose son is he? The Son of God. We call God Father because he has a son. Jesus did not become the Son of God when he was born in Bethlehem. He was the Son of God before he was born in Bethlehem. God has a son. Now, how can a divine essence, how does a divine spiritual single essence have a son? What does that even mean? Well, you have to come back next week. We're going to talk about that next week. But for now, it's best to be reminded that we call God Father not just because He created us, though that's part of it. Not just because everything is under His almighty power and control, though that's part of it. And not just because He adopted us into His family, although that's part of it. We refer to the Father as the Father because He has a Son. And so here's what I want you to do at Christmas time. Every time you call God Father, you're actually remembering the Christmas story. Our Heavenly Father is a Father because He has a Son. And we know this because He sent that Son into the world as a man to save His people from their sins, which is the very message of Christmas.